Well, good morning. Uh, it's a joy to be back with you. I uh, was away last weekend and I uh, felt like just something was <laughs> missing in my life. It was really sweet. It's really sweet to just be back with you in worship this morning. Uh, as the summer begins, we're uh, continuing our look at the Psalms. We've been doing this for a couple summers in a row now, just one Psalm at a time, looking through the songbook, what is the songbook of God's people through the ages. And so this morning, that brings us to Psalm 26. This is a, a plea for vindication. This is a, another Psalm of King David as he pleads for vind- vindication in the only place where vindication really matters, uh, before the Lord himself. Let's look together. I'm going to read all 12 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray uh, that you would be with us, among us, that uh, Holy Spirit, your your spirit of presence and grace and comfort, uh, the the spirit that educates us, uh, convicts us, comforts us, would be among us and helping us as we look to your word. And I pray that you would give me help that you would help me to love these people well, to, um, to honor your word and your character uh, as we look at these things. And would you strengthen my voice, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was listening to a sermon earlier this week. It was given by one of my old professors from seminary. Uh, his name is Jimmy. Uh, his wife's name is Tricia. And, uh, and just to know them is to love them. They are like the sweetest, most generous, loveliest people you may have ever come across in your whole life. He's no longer, he's not a professor right now. He's pastoring in the Atlanta area. And he told this story, uh, which makes total sense if you knew them. They were on sabbatical last summer and he and his wife were in uh, England and they were in a pub one night and they just hit it off with this other couple. There's a younger couple who happened to be getting married the very next day. And, uh, and they, they uh, you know, some, like there was obviously some mutual joy there such that the, this young couple invited them to come to their wedding the next day. And Jimmy and Trisha, I just wonder, like, did they give each other a look or like, I, like they immediately said yes, apparently. So they, they went 
to this wedding. Like, they're on sabbatical. What else are they going to do, I guess? So they go to this wedding the next day, and when they show up, they find out that they are the only ones there. That the wedding was to be very small. And uh, the congregation was composed of just the two of them. And the reason for that was, was because uh, the bride had been enduring uh, just vicious attacks uh, by coworkers, attacks against her competency, attacks against her character, uh, threats that were so serious that they had to involve the police. And so they were getting married uh, in the only way they knew how. And, uh, and here was Jimmy and Tricia coming along uh, in this very small wedding. Now, can we just sit there for a second? Uh, can we imagine what that must have felt like for this young couple? Like to have your character and your competency questioned so thoroughly that you become afraid to invite people to your wedding. Like the wedding is a time when you're supposed to have a crowd of adoring and witnessing, participating people. And here they are getting married alone. Like the loneliness and the isolation and the despair of that. But here's the thing. I think you do know some of what that feels like. It might not be as severe as that, but I think you know what it's like to have the people around you talk about you, maybe disparage your character or doubt your gifts or disparage your value. You know what it's like to walk into a room where everybody suddenly goes quiet because they were talking about you. You know what that feels like. You know what that felt like when you were a kid and you know what that feels like as an adult. You know what that feels like. And we all have different ways of responding to that, right? Like sometimes we uh, put our heads down and we just kind of try not to make any more waves and endure it, let the storm pass over. Sometimes we fight back with our own accusations. You're going to accuse me of something, I'm going to fight back and accuse you of something even worse. Uh, sometimes we seek to control the narrative as much as we can, maybe defend ourselves and correct somebody's understanding of who we are. And here what we see in this psalm, that when David goes to pray this prayer, accusations are in the air. Suspicion and doubt is being cast against his character. And what we see him do is none of those things. Instead, what he does is he goes before the Lord and makes a plea for vindication in the only place it really matters, before the Lord himself. And so how does he make this plea? He, he makes some claims about who he is. He talks, he, he, interestingly, he supports those claims by talking about who he's with. And, uh, and finally, uh, he, he comes to a resolution and a place of stability and security. That's the flow of this thing. That's the way we'll talk about it. What he claims, who he's with, and finally where he lands. Okay? Uh, first, what he claims. Um, what's he claiming? Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. 
So integrity is the beginning of this psalm, the claim of integrity. Integrity uh, is right at the end of this psalm. In verse 11, you see this uh, commitment to persevere in, in integrity. Integrity is really what this psalm is all about. It begins with this claim. It ends uh, in that way. But the way that he makes this claim of integrity is really, really interesting. What he does is he demonstrates a coherence uh, or an intimate connection between his external acts of integrity and his internal heart of integrity. He says there's no difference between those two. Um, look at verse one. I'm going to demonstrate this for you a couple different ways. He begins by saying, I have walked in my integrity. Okay, walking is visible. We see that we walk before men and women. Uh, you can see how I've walked. That's external. And then he says, I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. You see the connection there? Um, that's internal. Okay, so there's this a connection between uh, the, the internal and the external. It happens again in verse two. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. And my heart and my mind is internal. That, uh, that would represent the seat of the will or the place where decisions are made. Uh, and then in verse three, he makes an external reference. He says, your steadfast love is before my eyes. I walk in your faithfulness. And the point that's being being made here in the psalm is that uh, our, all of our external behavior is rooted in something that's internal. There's this internal instinct in David that's so profoundly committed to God's ways that it affects how he lives out in the world, okay? Let me give you a couple of examples. This first one's uh, really fun. Uh, back in 2019, some of you might remember this in the news. This was 2019 on I-295 north of Atlanta, Dunwoody area, uh, if you're familiar with that. There was an armored uh, truck that was going along the... Some of you are nodding, you know. <laughs> this armored truck is, is going along the interstate uh, when the left side door malfunctioned and flies open and bags of cash... Are, are like dropped out into the interstate. Uh, all small bills, ones through 100s, $175,000 of cash just flies out into the interstate. And you can imagine what happened at that point. Like people are pulling over, people are stopping in the middle of the interstate. Like traffic in Atlanta is already bad. Can you, like it was stopped up for miles and people are just running. It's a cash grab just grabbing as much cash as they could. And they all clear out before the police get there. One guy, he worked for Uber Eats. And when he first saw what happened, he, uh, he thought there were leaves blowing around in the air, like he didn't know what it was. And then he realized it was cash. He couldn't believe his luck. And he runs around. He pocketed something like $2,000. And then when he gets back in the car, he goes to the police station. And he turns it all in. And the, the, as far as I can tell, only a few people did that. So they, they only recouped about $6,000 worth. But that, that's an act of integrity that was driven by something that was going on in his heart, right? Here's another one. Uh, a man named J.P. Hayes, he made national news in 2008 uh, he was, he's probably a better golfer than any one of us here, but on the PGA tour, he was about, a, he was an average golfer, middle of the road. 
Um, And he was in a qualifying tournament in Texas when he realized he had accidentally used a non-regulation ball for two strokes. Okay, that was it, two strokes. And uh, and it, it really wasn't even his fault. He was just, in the PGA, that's a really big deal, okay? You, you're only supposed to use a certain certain balls. And uh, and it really wasn't even his fault. He, he was just using the ball the caddy handed to him, uh, and he just used it, and then he realized two strokes later he was using uh, an illegal ball. And uh, And the thing about it is he could have gotten away with it. Um, he, he, like nobody was watching, uh, he, he could have gotten away with it, but this is what he had to say. He said, no one would have known, but I knew, and I have some people looking down on me that would have known. So that was a decision I had to make. And so he told the officials about it when he realized it. He told the officials about what had happened. Nobody thought less of him. In fact, he made uh, national news when this all happened. Everybody admired him, but he was disqualified from the tournament. He couldn't qualify for the PGA the next year. He went went a whole year without being able to play professional golf. Acts of integrity are often costly, aren't they? But what do these stories have in common? Well, one is they're anecdotal. Tests of their integrity, they couldn't have predicted it. It just kind of came their way. Um, they didn't have a lot of time to think about how they would respond when their integrity was tested. In both stories, you have people that probably could have, could have gotten away. Nobody would have known about it. Both of them made a costly decision to maintain their integrity. And, and it's really easy to look at what they did and, uh, and kind of stop there, just be impressed by what they did. But what's really impressive is the heart behind what they did. Their external was a reflection of the internal machinations of the heart. And when we think about integrity, that's the way I want, I really think that's the way I want you to think about it. Is that it, it, it has a lot more to do with what's going on inside of us. And for the Christian, our our integrity in life is really compelled by our trust in a God who is looking out for us. What does David say? He says, your steadfast love is before my eyes. That his integrity is is fueled by understandings of who God is. That God is faithful to him. Uh, I walk in your faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness that frees us to indulge in or even endure the cost of integrity. So do I trust that God provides for my needs so much so that I don't need to take what's mine? And do I trust that God holds my life in his hand so much so that I don't need to manipulate the truth to get ahead? I'm free of that burden. Do I trust that God loves me so much so that I don't need to lie to win the affections of others? That's how David makes the case, that if you looked at his heart, you would find him innocent. And another way he supports his case, this is really interesting to me that he does this. He begins to talk about the company he keeps, who he's with, and perhaps more importantly, who he's not with is a major theme in this psalm, the people he's around. And the people that he's not around, where you don't find him, verse 4 is where you don't find him. I do not sit with men of falsehood. 
nor do I consort with hypocrites. And, and the verbs that he uses in these verses are really intense. I hate the assembly of evildoers. Uh, you get the impression that if you were there, uh, if you were in the temple and uh, David is praying before the altar this prayer, you probably knew the people that he was talking about. Uh, in fact, uh, these might be the people that were throwing uh, suspicions around about his character. So what David is doing is he's drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, these people are not my people. And that's why he's able to say in verse six, I wash my hands in innocence. Uh, imagine, if you're familiar with the story, imagine Pilate uh, washing his hands saying, I am not guilty of the death of this man, Jesus, as Jesus is sent to execution. That's kind of the kind of picture that's being captured in all of this. Um, <clears throat> and that verb sit, he uses it twice there. Uh, he uses it, um, I do not sit with men of falsehood in verse four. And then in verse five, I will not sit with the wicked. That's a really provocative verb when you look at that. Um, what it means when you see that word, think associate, or work together, scheme together would be another way of understanding that word. It's an intense form of association with a people. John Calvin, uh, this is the way he said it. It means not sharing in their counsel or not fellowshipping in their working. Well, now, now why is all that important? Because, because uh, if you're a Christian in this room, like some alarm bells might be running uh, you know, like going off in your head right now. Like, does that mean I'm not allowed to be with certain people? Like, do I only, do I only set up shop in my life with, with people who believe the same things I do or have the same opinions I do? Why is this important? Well, to borrow an old phrase, um, <clears throat> where you stand is where you sit. It's an old political idiom. You'll see it used in political discourse sometimes. And it just simply says that where you stand on a particular issue is dramatically influenced by the people that you're around. But you and I, we are sponges. We, we, you might think you're a rock and you are not. <laughs> we are sponges uh, that, that borrow, that mimic that learn from the people that are around us. And so David is not saying that we should only have our lives intersect. Like Jesus says, we are salt and light in the world. But what David is saying is that we need to think carefully about who we learn from, about, about what wisdom we, we learn from, about who in our lives guides us, about what our primary influences are. And that's exactly where David goes with this passage. He says our integrity depends on it, uh, and you will not find him in these places. But where do you find him? Well, there are all these references about how if you were looking for David, you would probably find him in the temple. Verse 8, I love the habitation of your house. That's the temple. Uh, I love the place where your glory dwells. That's the temple. Uh, that's where David's heart of integrity is shaped 
through the practice of worshiping with God's people. That's the argument he makes. In verse 6, you see, this is really interesting. Uh, I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole on this, so just bear with me. But in verse 6, you see him kind of going around the altar and proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling of all your wondrous deeds. We can't know this for sure, but this is probably, I'm leaning to, I'm pretty convinced that this is a reference to the practice of uh, toda, toda, uh, where one would walk around the altar in the temple and sing songs of remembrance. It was a practice of worship where they would go around and sing songs of remembrance, remembering the mighty acts of God on behalf of his people. Cultivating, what is he doing? Cultivating a heart of thanksgiving to God and a heart of devotion for God. Like, do you ever feel that your heart is just out of control? Like, do you ever feel like your impulses just kind of run wild? Or like, like, why do I want this thing? Like, my affections. What we're, being, what we're, what we're seeing here is that a heart of integrity is cultivated over time through practice of worshiping with God's people. That's what worship does. It shapes us as his people. We can be really casual about this. And I'm telling you that we can't be. That worship is the the most formative practice that God gives us. That forms us as the people of God. David's heart of integrity is built through the habit and the practice of worship. And if you are wondering about the formative power of worship, then you need to only look at where David lands. The first thing you see is that this stabilizes him as a person. My, verse 12, my foot stands on level ground. And with that stability, I think what we see is this element of fearlessness. Like y'all, y'all can say whatever you want. I'm vindicated before the Lord. Whatever recriminations you are throwing at me, I am the Lord's and he is mine. Psalm 46 puts it this way. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains move, I will not fear. It's like he's saying, whatever you say, my stability is found in the only place that matters. I will bless the Lord. That's the arc of this prayer. You see, you see, A lot of psalms kind of work this way. They follow a similar trajectory. Um, It begins with a plea for vindication. It articulates that his integrity is a matter of the heart and that his heart is blameless before God. Uh, His heart is shaped by worship and not those who scheme and do evil things. And then finally, he lands in a place of stability and fearlessness. And all, all this is great, isn't it? Like, it's just really lovely. Except for one thing. I don't know if I can pray this prayer. Like, I mean, who, who can pray this prayer? And, and how in the world can David pray this prayer? Like, we know some things about David, don't we? Like, uh, really? Like, let's just take his most infamous sin. Like, uh, it, it is such a betrayal of the virtue of integrity from the beginning to the end. 
where he manipulates and brings a woman that he's not married to into his own bed. Then he lies about it. And then he manipulates a battle that affects his country and people that are pledged to serve him so much so that this woman's husband dies. I mean, come on, David. Are you really going to stand before the altar of the Lord and ask God to examine your heart? And not only that, but I'll I'll just confess that the more I studied this psalm through the week, I felt exposed. Like, I think if you, if you, if you open me up and look at, like, I don't know if we'd like what we all saw. That's what, that's what this does is it challenges us. And, And if you're like me and you're kind of feeling exposed too, there's something important that we need to understand when we come across psalms like this. One is just that, uh, that it's holding up an ideal for us. It, it, it just as we use it in our own worship, whether it's in this room or privately at home in prayer, um, it is it is uh, helping us as we strain toward the ideal that God calls us to be, and God calls us as His people to be a people of integrity, a people whose yes is yes and whose no is no, and that is a, that is a standard by which we're held to. But here's the other thing: it is also training our hearts. To look to the one who perfectly captures everything described in this psalm. We don't know when in David's life this psalm came along. We don't know. But we can look at very specific times in Jesus' life and ministry where everything here is described by the person and the work of Jesus himself. I mean, Jesus is the one who loved the place where God's glory dwelled. Even at a young age, he said, don't you know, I must be where my, I must be in my father's house. And Jesus is the one who endured the suffering of false accusations and recriminations from the beginning to the very end of his life and his ministry. And in Jesus, what we see is someone who is completely innocent In every regard, if anybody was fit to make a plea for vindication and a heart of integrity, it was Jesus. He obeyed God in every passing moment and then yet suffered not for his sin, but for ours. And now because of Jesus, listen, you and I, we don't have to make a plea for our own vindication because Jesus does it for us. He stands next to God the Father. He says, me for him. He says, me for her. My blood, my perfect sacrifice covers every weight of every one of this person's sins. Internally, externally, I stand with my people. Uh, I think Jimmy would be really embarrassed to know I was talking about him uh, because he is such a sweet, tender man, but he is always pointing at Jesus. That's who he is. But when I look at him and what Trisha did that next morning at that person's wedding, I think I do see something of what Jesus Christ does for us. Because even when no one else was willing to stand with this couple, they said, I will. They said, I will. I'll stand with you. You don't have to be alone. I'm with you.
And that's what Jesus says to us. I'll stand with you every moment of every day. No matter what they say about you, no matter what they think about you, I'm with you. Jesus says, I am yours. And you are mine. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. O you who claim us as your own, O you who suffered and died for us, O you who promise us a home with you, who is right now preparing a place for us to be with you, would you be the hope of our hearts, the object of our greatest affections? Would you be ever present before us and lead us in the way that you call us to? We ask these things in your name, the name of our Savior, our Rock, our Defender, our older brother, our friend, Jesus Christ. Amen.